0: Welcome to the Retail Focus Podcast, a weekly collection of news, interviews, and information from the world of retail.
1: We welcome you to this week's edition of the Retail Focus Podcast. I'm Trent Kling for both Layton, Working Behind the Scenes as well as McKenna Langley, our associate producer. Coming up on this week's episode, we'll be joined by Joe Fish. Joe Fish is the CEO of Wine Access. We'll talk to him a little bit about Wine Access's business, but more importantly, we'll talk a bit about subscription-based retail. This is a portion of retail that we have seen really get some momentum, especially post-pandemic. You have major retailers adopting subscription-based platforms. You also have those traditional retailers. You think of retailers that market quite a bit, like Dollar Shave Club, for example. So he's going to talk about the ins and outs of subscription-based retail, their thought process as they were developing their subscription-based retail platforms and more. In news, we'll look at athletic retail. Once again, Academy, Lululemon getting the job done and it seems like everyone having success in this sector with one notable exception who we'll talk about. And then we'll look ahead to Five Below as they unveil a new growth plan set to cover the next few years. A quick reminder that you can access us as well throughout the course of the week on social media at Retail Podcast on both Instagram and Twitter, where Layton is retweeting stories on Twitter and then placing pictures up on Instagram of our recent retail travel. So let's dive right into Academy as, again, they continue Athletic Retail's winning streak. Lululemon, as well, will discuss very briefly at the end of this story. But Academy's results were even more impressive than their brethren. You look at the likes of Dick Sporting Goods and Hibbit and Big Five. Widespread strength in all of their categories fueled growth even over a stimulus-boosted Q4 of 2020. And I think that was what was most remarkable about this fourth quarter for them. They were lapping stimulus payments in last year's fourth quarter. A lot of retailers have been concerned about that aspect of their fourth quarter from 2021, saying, hey, it's naturally not going to be quite as strong because of the lapping of stimulus payments, especially since Academy's quarter crossed over into January of 2022. But as far as the numbers are concerned, Academy's comps were up 13.1% year over year. And that added to a 16.1% gain in Q4 of 2020. So it's not like last year was any shrinking violet for Academy either. Two-year stack comps, therefore, come in at 29.2%. Net sales saw a slightly larger bump owing to a new location in their portfolio. Net sales were up 13.2%. And sure enough, November, when you look at the sales cadence, that was the best month comp-wise, as again, holiday shopping was pushed forward a little bit. They said the first three weeks in November particularly were above expectation for the company. And what was perhaps most impressive when you look at their sales as a whole was their e-commerce game, because this is a time where most specialty retailers are seeing steps back in e-commerce sales year over year or maybe break even comps year over year but ecom for academy rose in this year's fourth quarter 22.7 percent over last year's fourth quarter and this outpaced sequential gains the first three quarters of 2021 they were solid but nothing to write home about the 22.7 percent growth over q4 of 2020 pushed their full year e-commerce growth to 6.2%. And again, this is against a backdrop of a lot of those specialty retailers seeing mostly even sales in e-commerce due to those e-commerce booms we saw in the early days of the pandemic in 2020. Now, e-commerce did pretty well for them in 2020. I should mention their two-year stack now stands at an increase of 153.1% for e-commerce sales. E-commerce penetration for Q4 was still on the lower end When you look at retail as a whole but it was up for academy to about 12.9 percent that's a little bit higher it had been single digits for most of the fiscal year coming into the fourth quarter across the company regardless of whether you look at in-store or digital sales transaction counts rose average ticket rose with the comp sales gain academy has now registered an incredible 10 consecutive quarters of comp growth massively impressive and something I don't think we're going to see too many retailers put up in terms of a streak because of the pandemic effects. Selling general and administrative expenses, we continue with the numbers. They continued to deleverage for them with all of the sales improvements. SG&A was down to 21.3% of sales. This Q4 versus 22.4% last year. Costs of goods sold, as we're seeing across the retail board, did rise as a percentage of sales. And that's going to be expected, given some industry-wide hesitancy, especially in athletic gear, to raise prices to keep pace with Inflation Academy, a few investments in price, particularly as it pertains to their private label products. Their operating income, though, when you look at the bottom line as a percentage of sales, that also saw an uptick for Q4 income margins sitting at 11% this year versus 8.8% last year. And so no surprise that this capped off a year of record profits and record sales for the company. And in fact, they noted on the call, I found this amazing, 100% of their stores, every single one of their stores is profitable and contributes to their overall earnings. So that's notable and also kind of tells those analysts on the call, hey, we're not looking to necessarily move or right size our portfolio instead, slow, slow sustained growth is the key for Academy now as far as breakdowns in categories they said basically every category helped out their sales during this last quarter but specifically sports and outdoors products saw high demand so they split those into sports and recreation and then you have outdoors products there are other two categories apparel and footwear were also up on a comp basis in fact apparel was up 20 percent over last year When you look at the year as a whole, all four of those merchandise divisions and all of their geographic divisions as well, notched double-digit growth. And Of course, this is a retailer that you could argue sees some white space because they are mostly in southern states. They have a massive presence in Texas, stretching into close to the upper Midwest, probably about the mid-Midwest, if you will. But something that they said has helped their store growth in terms of sales is the fact that they're located in these states you look at texas you look at some of the other southern states that are really growing in terms of population you look at a state like tennessee as an example so they're located in these places that are seeing this population growth and those stores that have been there for years and years are benefiting from that now as far as categorically I mentioned sports and recreation being up for them. Specifically, biking and pickleball have seen great momentum. Pickleball is right there with running as an activity that's drawing a lot of new participants. One of the fastest growing sports. And I know where I'm at in Colorado Springs. If you get a nice day outside, you can drive by any pickleball court and they will be packed. Outdoors products such as fishing rods and grills were also up for the year as a whole, not necessarily for the fourth quarter. Hiking and camping gear also up in that outdoors category. In the fourth quarter specifically, I found this interesting, they called out pizza ovens as drivers. They started to stock pizza ovens in their stores, and this goes back to really more of that nesting phenomenon, but it's kind of an outdoor nesting phenomenon, if you will, as people upgrading their backyards, throwing in pizza ovens, they're spending more time at home, And so a good sign for Academy, certainly, but yeah, you wonder how long pizza ovens will be a driver as far as sales are concerned, at least for the fourth quarter, though, help to drive some of those holiday sales. Going forward, they said on the call itself, as they were meeting with analysts, that some of the lifestyle changes made during the pandemic, like getting outside more often, as an example, appear at least so far to be somewhat permanent to some degree. They don't see Things going back to the way they were in 2019 in terms of people not getting outside quite as much. They also called out national brand sales. This is something that has been talked about a lot, especially with our coverage of Foot Locker last month, where we talked about Foot Locker maybe struggling going forward because of some pullbacks from major suppliers such as Nike. But at Academy, that is not the case. Their sales of products for their three largest national brands they carry grew 25%. Sales for nine of the top 10 national brands they carry were comping up double digits for the entire year of 2021. And there was no mention of supply cutbacks. Very similar to what we saw from Hibbett's earnings call. That is a positive for Academy. And again, speaks to the fact that pullbacks at Foot Locker may be a little bit more localized there, at least so far. It could be that suppliers such as Nike see Foot Locker as more of a danger to their direct-to-consumer sales than, say, a larger retailer such as Academy, larger in terms of square footprint. The other thing Academy has going for it is a high concentration of their sales is distributed throughout different brands and throughout different product types, where you were seeing with Foot Locker well over half of their sales centered around one particular brand. And it's kind of funny because Steve Lawrence on the call, Steve Lawrence is their chief merchandising officer. He included a cheeky line, and I'm going to quote this, as key vendor partners continue to pull back on broad distribution and narrow their retail partners to only the strongest brands like Academy, this funnels more of their product as well as new customers into our stores. It seems like kind of a pointed shot at that one retailer that's not doing so well in terms of athletic wear. But Academy also has the benefit of selling sporting goods, and of course, like I said, even if they were to see a pullback in slight from Nike or Under Armour or Adidas, they would be able to compensate for that. They also have a very substantial private label brands program that has been driving sales, just like Dick's has their own private label brands as well. Now, looking ahead to their next fiscal year, Academy does expect some amount of backtracking, on such a strong last couple of years they anticipate comps falling one to four percent and an approximate similar change in net sales so not all is going to be as rosy as 2021 going forward at least that's what's anticipated not much of a change as far as store count is concerned they do expect eight new stores to add to their 259 they've got so far and some remodels but The new stores aren't expected to contribute significantly to the net sales totals, at least not enough to push net sales into the positive. So a good quarter in the fourth quarter for Academy. And meanwhile, Lululemon also delivered the goods in a quarter that bested analyst expectations. Their earnings per share came in at $3.39 Versus consensus estimates of $3.27. But the main story was their strength in men's. Their original goal of doubling their men's business was actually reached a year early. They were tabbing 2023 for that. Well, it's already happened. Fiscal 2021 was their first year. Over $6 billion in sales. And that was driven largely by massive comp gains. Total comps for them were up 22%. In-store comps in specific rose as their brick-and-mortar presence continues to be a major driver in terms of sales. And we see that larger penetration for brick-and-mortar sales versus the digital sales. Digital sales down to 49% of net revenue there. Men's categories grew 28%. Accessories grew 33%. Women's just grew 20%. Oh, come on. It's totally slacking there. No, 20% is a great number 28 and 33 percent even better as they absolutely crushed it in this past quarter. One thing of note for Lululemon, real estate costs jumped a little bit as well. Their current lease liabilities were up 13.8 percent at the end of this quarter versus a year ago. Now they'll gladly take that as long as their physical stores are killing it in these A-class shopping centers, which they are. This is up against store count growth of 5.9 percent during the year, so we see the lease liabilities outpacing store count growth they opened 23 stores during q4 alone they now have 574 stores open company wide so again this speaks to really the traffic that you're seeing in these a-class shopping centers people flooding back to these particular shopping centers and lululemon is more than willing to pay the price to get in the door because their core customer shopping at these centers these centers continue to be busy and so you really do take your hat off to these REITs. You can see that not only Lululemon, which could be argued is a traffic driver for these A-class centers, but also the overall traffic for these centers continues to remain high now, even as we get to about two years after the pandemic onset here in the United States. Now, as far as Lululemon's own outlook, they expect further jumps in growth. They are forecasting sales growth of 20 to 22% for next year so this is a differentiator certainly in comparison to academy which is seeing sales drop just slightly after that robust 2021 one initiative with lululemon to keep an eye on and we discussed this in a looking ahead segment actually recently with rei is their test of lululemon like new currently in two markets they might be seeking to expand what they're calling their re-commerce platform here They're kind of evaluating, seeing if it works in those two markets. And again, you look at it, this is a win for the company on multiple fronts if it takes off. It's a way to drive sales that hopefully won't cannibalize their mainline sales, while also presenting a positive PR opportunity in terms of the reuse of goods and the whole eco-friendly nature of such a platform. Now, I would argue that their brand set isn't exactly like REI's brand set in that many rei consumers of course very concerned about green initiatives very concerned about reducing things like their carbon footprint whereas lululemon customers are concerned to a point if you generalize as a whole but many of them just simply seeking luxury type athletic lines and so you certainly don't think that this would erode their brand image in the eye of the consumer Seems like a win or a potential win for Lululemon, but anxious to see where they go with this initiative, but should be a good 2022 for them, even if they fall short of their goals in terms of growing sales. But they are profitable, and unlike a lot of these brands that catch a lot of attention in the media, Lululemon really getting things done operationally, where, and you look at a company like, Peloton, for example, as a company that's shown declining earnings per share down into the negative. Lululemon, certainly not that, and operationally appears to be very strong. Well, coming up after this break, we'll be joined by Joe Fish, the CEO of Wine Access. He'll talk a little bit about subscription-based retail, what Wine Access does insofar as subscription-based retail, how they thought about, rolled out their platform, and then also how they learned from some mistakes they made in the early days of rolling out their subscription-based platform. I think it's an interesting conversation. We'll be joined by Joe after this. Once again this week, we're pleased to have the opportunity to talk about the podcast Inside the Mind. Now, if you've ever wondered what's going on in the minds of a customer whether you work in retail outside of retail it's time to stop wondering inside the mind is a great podcast that features interviews with real shoppers in a variety of retail and consumer sectors all mixed with analysis and insights it's produced by carney one of the original management consulting firms and it's hosted by greg portell and katie thomas they talk to very fascinating consumer groups and one consumer group that i found interesting this is a podcast i listened to recently as i was going through their back catalog but the podcast delving into high-end spirits consumers it'll actually dovetail nicely with the interview we have coming up with joe fish but they talk to high-end spirits consumers and there are a lot of things there that you don't think about when you think about high-end spirits consumers You think about high-end spirits consumers, you think, oh, well, they're going to be aiming for premier products, that type of thing. But they actually talked about the sustainability aspect of spirits companies and all the wood that goes into wine barrels and how customers may have some concern over that. And that was something I've honestly never thought about before when you're talking about this consumer group. There are other podcasts out there. For example, you can meet men's skincare users. That's a great episode. Plant-based milk consumers, of which I am one really digging oat milk right now. But I think that was a fascinating episode all the way back from last year. As like I said, you can go back through. These are really evergreen podcasts. And it's one of the reasons why we enjoy the show. You can also meet the sneakerheads. They have an episode talking to sneakerheads tying right into kind of what we were talking about with Academy and Foot Locker in our first segment so you can listen to brand new episodes and the back episodes of Carney's Inside the Mind on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Stitcher or wherever you get your podcast and the link to the Apple Podcast version of the show is in our show notes Subscription-based retail has been around for well over a century, but seems to garner less than its fair share of press, especially considering that you can make an argument that the sector is stronger than it's ever been. If you've got meal kit delivery services out there, large national retailers now offering subscription services, and of course, various different mail fulfillment options across a variety of smaller retail sectors. Well, today we're going to give subscription retail its due. And we're going to do that by talking to Joe Fish, CEO of Wine Access. Joe, welcome to the podcast. Trent, thanks for having me on. First, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about Wine Access and, of course, your role there as well.
0: Yeah, of course. So Wine Access is an online platform of the world's best wines from around the world. And really, they're curated by this amazing group of wine experts, Master of Wine, Master Somm, foremost sake expert and former beverage director of Morimoto. So you have some like really hard hitters that are traveling the globe and finding the best wines that you possibly can. And with each wine comes with a 500 to 1000 word narrative, telling the story behind the wine. Why is this relevant? Who are the people behind it? Like, why is this important to me? And as a company, always ensuring perfect provenance. So knowing that you're getting that wine directly from the winery and no funny business has been going on. And finally just a superior customer service experience. So always have really high net promoter scores in the high 70s, low 80s. So like we're really proud of those things and that's what the wine access experience is about. So my role as CEO, been with the company for about five years now and you know the, the job of me is just to make sure my people are doing the best they can and trying to provide the direction and guidance you know needed to hit on those kind of four pillars that I just spoke about.
1: Now, that being said, if someone were to go to WineAccess.com, you can see a standard e-commerce site there, plenty of wines available, a large selection of wines available for purchase. But today, we're going to specifically focus on your clubs, which is certainly along the lines of subscription retail theme. How do your clubs work at a high level, and what are some of the different options that you offer to customers?
0: Yeah, so we kind of think of them twofold. Most of them are on a quarterly basis, and there's a couple that are have a slightly different cadence. But I think the first set of them, we kind of call our wine access internal club. So not co-branded with anyone. It's our two discovery clubs, our connoisseur's club and collector's club. So essentially, you have various price points and also different approaches to the wine clubs themselves. And then in the second component of it, we have what we call co-branded wine clubs. So Wine Access and the Michelin Guide present or Wine Folly or Decanter, Wheels Up or Sunset. So those are done in conjunction typically with some sort of publication or other subscription service in which it made sense to bring in a wine partner to provide wine under a subscription model. And if we kind of think about how we come up with the concepts of each one of these, specifically in the co-branded clubs, the idea is there's a very specific subscriber to the Michelin guide. So that obviously is going to be very much around fine food and fine wine. So when we're coming up with the concept of that club, which will be very different than potentially a discovery club of our own wine access internal club, it's going to be very much around food, potentially showcasing the Somme and Chef for that particular club. So in Q4 of 2021, Per Se was the Michelin restaurant that we showcased and selected four amazing wines, did an absolutely beautiful event there to show how those wines paired with different dishes from Per Se.
1: Now, I'm kind of curious about, and you kind of alluded to it there, the thought process behind creating these different clubs, because as you mentioned, you have vastly different clubs, vastly different consumer base, I would guess. What's the thought process like? Because I'm guessing it's not just like, hey, let's start a club devoted to West Coast wines and roll from there.
0: Yeah, great question. So first and foremost, when we're looking at potential partners, we want to make sure that the values line up. If we look at the Michelin Guide, they really created kind of content marketing as well as this commitment to excellence in the culinary world. And our hope is that in wine, we can do the same. From a wine folly standpoint, you know, similar sort of thing where they happen to be, I think, one of the best educators in the world when it comes to wine. And what Wine Folly has done there is absolutely amazing. And their commitment to showcasing an entire world of wine and the story behind it, which obviously, as content, is very much near and dear to us and very much within our values of what we think makes wine access special. So, as we kind of go through each one of these potential partners or partners that we've had, We first said, hey, do we align on the values of what each person is trying to do in their respective space? And then when the answer is yes, we then move to kind of the second phase. Then we say, okay, why are people subscribing to these different publications and try to craft a different sort of club around that? So the Michelin Club may be more culinary focused where Wheels Up, which is another club that we do, may be all about access a very, very limited number of highly coveted, higher-priced bottles that you can only really get via wine access and Wheels Up. Sunset Magazine, again, when we think food, wine, travel, that West Coast sort of lane, that in and of itself is a theme that very much coincides with their readership and to us makes sense to partner with and create a club around that. We try not to have, with our co-branded partner clubs, any one club have significant overlap with the other. So we want to make sure that we're picking the right partners, but then we're also just not spitting out the same thing in each one of them. We want each one of them to have their own identity and feel special and tailored to each one of their readership or member base.
1: And that's also important, I would guess, because you're not maybe overflowing customers that come to your website with 100 different club options and kind of the paradox of choice there. I know education is something that you've talked about already, especially the tie-in with literature, the tie-in with a number of different publications but you also talked about the fact that when customers receive a shipment from one of these clubs it comes along with a lot of information about the specific wines a story to tell and i was kind of curious from your perspective the role that education plays in maybe customer retention or just making sure that those that receive the product feel like they're getting their money's worth out of this
0: individual club Wine is a confusing space. And it's just kind of inherently that way. It almost feels like each region by region can be its own kind of wild, wild west of you you have one country who may do something one way. If you're drinking red burgundy, you're not going to see Pinot Noir on the label. You just have to be expected to know that if it is red burgundy, you're drinking Pinot. And that can be potentially really confusing to a lot of consumers, I think, until you really jump into it. and. For us, the story behind it, the how we found it, like that's what makes I think wine or just any product such a beautiful thing. And it's what really drives that kind of emotional connection. when we think about you know our mission and purpose, it's really to connect people in place through wine. And the way that we approach content does exactly that. And then furthermore, when we think through purpose, it's really to help people discover and enjoy the world's most inspiring wines. And we always think that the wine's got to be absolutely amazing, but then there has to be that content angle. Like, why is this relevant? Like, why is this fermented grape juice so important? And what is the history behind it? And what made it taste as amazing as it does today? So that's always a big component of what we do. Every shipment comes with an insert that will give you the story behind it, but tasting notes, a drinking window when we think you should drink it, obviously name of the wine and as much information as you'd like. And then beyond that, with every club, we develop videos for each wine so that you actually get to taste with the experts and you get to walk through each one of the wines and have Vanessa, our head of wine and master of wine, walk you through a guided tasting, which I think is pretty, pretty special when you think about it with her being think it's one of 57 in the U.S. right now and one of about 400 or so in the world.
1: Well, and you kind of beat me to it because that was kind of my next question is you've got a number of associates there at Wine Access. You mentioned Vanessa Conlon, who's a master of wine. There's not that many masters of wine in the U.S. For our listeners out there unfamiliar with the industry, it's a very, very, very exclusive club. So what kind of maybe clout does having those type of whether it's a master of wine or a psalm or or what have you what type of clout does that give the program and then also what type of input do they have in terms of the products that are going into each of the clubs whether they be quarterly or otherwise
0: I always think of when I try to frame people into anchoring how rare is the master of wine or master psalm certification in each program there's about a little over 400 people in the entire world. So that pretty much means that it's about the same number of like active NBA players. So we think of Vanessa as like our star, she's our Steph Curry of the wine world, big Warriors fan growing up in the Bay area. So I always anchor to Steph Curry, like she's our Steph Curry and she's someone who has dedicated her life to this craft. And in a sense, as the name implies, she's mastered wine in a way that so few people have. And having her level of knowledge, her ability to assess, you know, high quality wines is really unrivaled. So it, when we have a team of experts like that, you know that every single bottle that we're putting out is going to be top notch. Now, that doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to like it because there's certain varietals that I just, no matter how well made it is, I can't drink it, but it's always going to be really well made. And if we've done our job right and our content, we've laid out the wine and why we think you'll like it if you like that particular varietal then you're always going to be getting a top-notch product. We're really lucky to have her and that rest of the team curating and assessing each one of those wines.
1: Now let's zoom out a little bit to the macro level in terms of subscription-based retail or retail as a whole. As Wine Access has undertaken, these different clubs has had some of these partnerships with outside publications and the like. What are some things that you've learned about subscription-based retail in terms of customer retention in terms of ensuring that everyone's getting the end product that they signed up for?
0: Yeah, great question. When we first launched, we launched our first clubs as monthly, and they were six bottles. And I think that that was a lot. You think about it, it's, it's going to be six bottles, and it's you know 12 times a year, 72 bottles. And we had seen pretty early on that attrition was higher than we would have liked. So We moved it down to quarterly because I think a lot of people do want to be able to explore the website, explore the daily offer via email. And they did want products pushed to them, but probably not to that magnitude. So what we had found is when we actually moved from a monthly model to a quarterly model, we saw our retention shoot way up. We then layered in a second component where all of the purchases on Wine Access are eligible for 10% off, some exclusions do apply. But for the most part, any purchase on wine access, if you're in the wine club is 10% off, which then we found that shot up retention and that actually shot up purchase frequency as well. So the idea was, we didn't figure it out right away at first because it was very new to us as the company had been around for 12 years before it launched its first subscription. So it wasn't as if we were born into this, it was, we were kind of figuring it out along the way. So we had found, That as we kind of continue to layer in those different benefits, which in hindsight seems obvious, but probably wasn't obvious at the time when we were planning it out, it really helped from a retention standpoint. Wine club videos, we've invested more in the production quality as well of it. Some of our earlier ones, they're fun to watch and to see how it's evolved. So continuing to kind of invest in the different components of the experience.
1: And you bring up a great point there. You mentioned offering that 10% off discount to subscribers for the rest of your website. What are some other ways in which you feel like you've been able to really increase the awareness of the Wine Access brand through the subscriptions or through the clubs for your products that you know, people might be looking for a one or two off circumstance?
0: Yeah, I think as we've moved a little bit out of the lockdown, so to say, from COVID, we have done certain events, whether it was around, you know, per se in Michelin, we've done a number of different kind of virtual events with the Decanter Club. We had showcased a number of wines similar with Sunset as well. So we've tried to figure out ways where people even outside of the club could at least have an experience of, okay, what would this virtual tasting be like and get a preview of it, before they end up jumping into the club itself. We also, we buy long on every single one of our clubs so that you do have the option to repurchase. So if someone did want to try potentially one or two wines of our club, but without committing to it, they could take a look at last month's club, try one or two and say, okay, great. These are amazing wines. I want to jump into the Sunset Club or into Michelin or into Wine Access's Discovery Club. So providing that has definitely been a way to pick up some of those ones and twos and then eventually hopefully convert into wine club members.
1: One of the things that's often talked about with subscription-based retail from a customer perspective is sometimes the difficulty of cancellation. And I won't name names, but there are specific (laughs) retailers out there that are notorious for making it nearly impossible to cancel. And we've seen Amazon's recent ad campaign towards their subscription-based service be completely about the ease of canceling and I'm curious from the perspective of someone that runs a very substantial subscription-based program what's kind of that fine line that you've found between you know obviously wanting to retain customers in the program but also making it easy for them to
0: walk away if they do want to? I you know, mentioned a little bit earlier that one of the pillars that we're built on is superior customer service. And I don't think you get to high Net promoter scores without meeting customers where they are, and that involves if they want to cancel a subscription. So, if anyone ever wants to cancel, write in to Wine Access. You know, say I want to, you know, bow out of the club. We typically like to get a little bit of information why, but that doesn't. You don't have to give that and if you choose not to, and just say one out. Like customer service immediately processes that. We have a great team. So I think we're up to six or seven people now. All for the most part, all NAPA-based, all WSET level two or higher certified. And we want, when you come in, to be just as great of experience as when you bound. And some people will say, I've tried the club, this is great, but I actually really have enjoyed buying via your daily offer instead. And I want to put more of my purchases there or I'm moving. There could be any number of reasons, but we try to make it as seamless as possible where you can just say, unsubscribe me from the club and then you're done. I don't think you're going to grow retention overall if you're not meeting customers where they are.
1: And yeah, as you allude to, it's all about that customer lifetime value there. And if you make it difficult for them to cancel, they might not come back and buy those deal of the day products and so forth from your website. Well, we'll close out with this question. I don't want you to give away any company secrets, of course, but. What do you see as the next frontier, at least as far as wine access clubs are concerned? What are some of the things that are on the horizon that you might be excited about seeing in this subscription-based retail space?
0: Yeah, I think you know we have a pretty big backlog of different projects that are at kind of various points you know, specifically in subscription. And I think it sometimes feels like it's a lot of water trying to come through the hose. So we had the big push, I would say the beginning of the year when decanter and I say the beginning of the year we're in March, it's not even through Q1 came through, but we have a couple of things we're working on that we're really excited about both from a subscription base, but also from integrating some of the website product and features That we're going to be able to integrate into each one of the clubs and I think make the overall buying experience kind of even better. So as you may have suspected, horribly vague in what I said, but at the same time, I think some people will see some pretty cool stuff coming out soon.
1: Well, that's excellent. Vagueness aside, we appreciate you giving (laughs) us an eye into wine access there and some of the development in terms of your subscription-based model and some of these clubs that you have. Well, once again, Joe, we thank you for taking the time and joining us this morning.
0: Yeah, well, thank you. Really appreciate it. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts.
1: Well, we thank Joe for taking the time out of his busy schedule to join us. One of my favorite things about that conversation, he kind of told me when we were not recording, is that he's not going to shy away from circumstances in which they maybe made a mistake or made a misestimation, were forced to step back and reassess things. And I think that's fantastic because oftentimes you talk to retail leaders, CEOs, whatever, and they're unwilling to regard things oftentimes outwardly as maybe a a misstep or a learning opportunity and instead it's just sweeping things under the rug and going on to the next thing i I really appreciate joe's candor in that conversation and in talking about really what goes into crafting what for them has been a very successful subscription based retail platform so in our looking ahead segment this week we'll look ahead to five below they had an earnings call this week but more important than any of their numbers is their new growth plan that they unveiled. Previously, their growth plan, and we've talked about this before, saw a runway for 2,500 total stores in the U.S. Now their new plan calls for over 3,500 stores in the country. This new growth plan is called triple-double. This is reflective of the fact that they want to triple their current store count. That's a bit over 1,200 and double their earnings per share and sales through 2025. Now, not tripling their current store count by 2025, but at least doubling their earnings per share and sales through 2025. Between now and the end of 2025, they want to open around 1,000 stores to build up towards that overall 3,500 plus store count. So this means opening 375 to 400 stores over the next two fiscal years. And I think everyone that works on this show is a fan of five below as far as their overall concept as far as their success particularly over the past decade but looking ahead there is some concern that they might be getting out in front of their skis a little bit particularly as retail real estate rents continue to skyrocket in the centers they prefer you look at their co-tenants a lot of times you see those off pricers in there so tjx companies Ross and so forth this is real estate that a lot of people are fighting for that a lot of people are jockeying for and it's hard to imagine a large amount of their ideal commercial real estate in these larger strip centers opening up so they may also experience delays as far as development construction and other things you have talked to a few leaders in mid-sized markets or even smaller markets recently that are growing and they say, hey, we have a lot of interest from the likes of maybe off-price stores from the likes of retailers similar to Five Below, but we can't get developers to come in here and actually spend the time to develop because of the costs currently as it relates to construction. So you look at how this is going to impact the future for Five Below. Will they be moving into vacated places on a more consistent basis? Will they be moving into new construction? What are these new 400 stores over the next two fiscal years and 1,000 stores over the next three to four years going to look like? And we could see room for 3,500 stores for them easily in the U.S., but it's tough to imagine over 1,000 in the next few years given that unlike the likes of Dollar Tree and Dollar General, Dollar General's adding you know 1,000 new stores in a year. Five Below doesn't have the ability to scale quickly with freestanding locations in rural areas. These rural areas where land is cheap, Dollar General can just plop down a metal building and go for it and call it an expansion. Five Below is a little bit more specific about the areas that they want to move into and about the neighborhoods they want to be in and the co-tenants they want to be in these neighborhoods with. So all of that's going to go into their decision making as far as scaling up these 1,000 new stores, but At some point, you have to think that the construction clogs, the supply chain clogs that are causing delays in terms of retail development will be cleared up. You'll start to see redevelopments happening. You'll start to see developments happening again. Now, as this pertains to, you know, oftentimes we talk about on the show, there are people that think the U.S. is over retailed, in some cases by 30 to 40% in terms of retail real estate. Obviously, we're not seeing that be the case with occupancy. And the occupancy in areas that Five Below typically moves into, you're looking at 96, 97, 98%. So again, while it can be easy for a store to expand, there are a lot of other macro factors that build into decisions to expand and the ability to actually physically move into the stores. So I'm anxious to see how five below navigates these turbulent commercial real estate waters, turbulent development waters coming up over the next few years well that'll do it for us here on the retail focus podcast big thanks to mckenna langley and also Layton for helping out behind the scenes we'll be taking next week off of the podcast just a little bit of a breather before we really gear up into what could be a very busy summer for us we're looking at going to a few different conferences collecting multiple interviews there but we'll be back on april 17th with a fresh interview And, of course, more retail news and notes. We'll be back again two weeks from now. We appreciate you listening to the podcast and your support of the podcast. We'll be back with you soon.
0: This has been the Retail Focus Podcast. For more, visit our website at retailfocuspodcast.com and subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at Retail Podcast.